Alright, and welcome everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space episode 1005 for the week of Monday, June 11th, 2018. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Hey, Sawyer. How the heck are you? We're ready to rock and roll, and boy, do we got a lot of news for you. I'm doing great. Uh, we had a special episode that was going to be coming out, but due to some technical issues, that's a bit delayed. So instead, you and I are getting together and... Uh, Filling in the gaps because there is so much news that we couldn't let this go by. Especially the news coming out of Mars, and we'll we'll get there uh, in a little bit. But uh, Sawyer, you've got some launch news to go ahead and discuss with us. Yeah, uh, unfortunately, Mark is unable to join us. Cat has laryngitis, so we hope that she gets better and that Mark will be back soon. But in the meantime, yes, we had some major news about Mars, which we're going to tease you. You're going to have to wait for it. And if you're listening, though, on a podcast app, you can probably just fast forward. But I wouldn't because we're starting off with our launch roundup and we got plenty of great stuff in it and more than just your average launches. Uh, We'll start off with a few international ones we can mention uh, recently from the recording date today, which we're recording on June 14th. On June 12th, Japan successfully launching a spy satellite aboard an H-2A rocket from the Tanegashima Space Center in Japan. Uh, That mission is called IGS Radar 6 and will help be for all weather observation of multiple countries of interest, including North Korea. How timely. (laughs) Yeah, after the big conference uh, this past week between uh, the U.S. president and the uh, chairman of the uh, of North Korea, that'll be that'll be very interesting. I'm sure it'll play into whatever they've been talking about. Yeah, but we stick with space politics, not regular politics, so let's keep going. (laughs) Uh, We're also sticking on that side of the world. We have China, which launched a Long March 3A back on June 5th, carrying Fiengyun 2H, sometimes called 29. That launch is carrying a special geostationary meteorological satellite or weather satellite that will help with China as well. So a few launches over on the eastern side of the world going on, and... um, while we're talking about eastern side of the world launches, we can't forget about crew launches. We had one crew return and one crew take off from Kazakhstan. We'll start off with uh, Expedition 55, uh, which the crew of that safely landing back in the steps of Kazakhstan on Sunday, June 3rd, then landing around 8.40 a.m. Eastern time, obviously a little uh, different over there, local time, um, Anton Shkaplerov, NASA astronaut Scott Tingle, and JAXA astronaut Norshige Kanai safely landing back in the steps of Kazakhstan after nearly six months on their stay aboard the ISS. And just three days after that, well, three new crew members launching on their way for Expedition 56. that Soyuz MS-09 taking off at 7.12 a.m. Eastern Time on Wednesday, June 6th safely docking to the ISS on Friday, June 8th. On board that crew, 
Uh, boy, these are some tough ones here. Uh, <laughs> is um, Russian cosmonaut Sergei Prokopiev, uh, ESA astronaut Alexander Gerst, and NASA astronaut Serena Onion Chancellor. Yeah, Alexander Gerst, by the way, is set to command the ISS on this increment. The interesting thing, too, is next year, 2019, there will be no U.S. commander for the first time ever um uh for on on the uh on the ISS it'll all be uh you know a a foreign uh foreign uh, uh individual or foreign foreign astronaut will be commanding the ISS next year there will be no US commander that's that's just an interest for the very first time keep in mind when we talk about this there is a commander for the Russian side and for what's called the US side the U.S. side is more of the international segment of the space station, so that's NASA, ESA, JAXA, as opposed to the other side, which is entirely Roscosmos. So that's why, even though it's the NASA side, it's a big deal that it's not going to be a NASA astronaut in charge. Yeah. Um, also, uh, as we speak, because it is, you know, very early a.m., Thursday, uh, June 14th, as we discuss here, um, at about uh, 8.10 uh, this morning, uh, Ricky Arnold and Drew Froistel are set to go on their third EVA or spacewalk uh, this year um, to, on as uh, Expedition 56 crewmates. Uh, they will be, uh, the main purpose of this particular EVA, I believe, is to go ahead and replace uh, some television cameras. This will be the 211th spacewalk. For, on board the uh, International Space Station. That's crazy. Over 210 spacewalks to support ISS. I mean, that that's still cool. Now, ISS is so cool that we're going to get back to it in just a minute because we're going to switch gears slightly in our launch roundup, but continue with it, and uh, we're going to jump over to SpaceX. Now, SpaceX has had two launches since we last went on the air. Uh, the more recent of the two was SES-12, which successfully launched from Kennedy Space Center. Uh, and of importance of that mission was that the first stage was a block four, whereas the second stage is block five. In case you're unaware, block five is the final iteration of the SpaceX Falcon 9. It is the newest and the more advanced of all of their previous versions. If you want to get fancy, they're also called FT full thrust. But the big thing is block four and block five. And most important of all of that was the first entirely block five five launch and that one took place back on may 11th launching bangladesh's first ever satellite bangabandu one again that major because block five is what spacex said is the final iteration of the falcon 9 they do not plan to see any more major upgrades as they've done so far so in case you wonder why they haven't been reusing boosters as much, well, that's because they were saving, getting rid of the Block 4s and the Block 5 successfully landing on the drone ship, of course, I still love you, after launching its satellite into its correct orbit. Now, these are the Block 5s, which if you've ever got seen a model of it, you're like, oh, why does it have these weird black and white colors on it? Well, that's now what Block 5 finally looks like. But most importantly is they hope to fly these multiple times. And Gene, I think that leads us into another part of our discussion was part of the reflight rate that they recently discussed. Yeah, Sawyer, I'm looking at a, um, a Space News article from uh, June 11th, 2018. This was a proposal that uh, SpaceX had to actually expand uh, the uh, facilities over at the uh, the Kennedy Space Center. Uh, but the, the, the reflight rate was kind of, well... Oh, they were talking about, um, in the article, and to quote it here, 
um, during it during the telecon that uh, Elon Musk held, you know, uh, prior to the first launch of the Block Five uh, variant that you were just talking about, um, Elon Musk estimated that the new version of Falcon Nine, designed for reuse, uh, is going to fly at least three hundred times before being retired in favor of the Big Falcon rocket or BFR. Now, Sawyer, you did some math. You know, they basically say here that SpaceX plans to build about 30 and 50 Block 5s here, according to the article, um, to support those launches. Now, Sawyer, you did the math on that. Yeah, so basically, uh, if we're assuming that there's... Let's go for the high end, because at SpaceX, I'm sure they can hit it. Let's go for 50. So let's say uh, we're talking 50 of these boosters, right? Mm-hmm. And we're talking 300 launches for them, right? Yep. In total, we're talking about here about 15,000, if my math is correct, 15,000 launches that these 50 rockets will do in total. Just uh, for reference for how crazy that is in good <laughs> and bad ways, uh, just there's multiple uses of the word crazy here. Um, I mean, that in total, there have been approximately between 25 and 35, depending on how you count it, thousand launches ever into space. And that includes Roscosmos, NASA, India, China, Japan, all of the major launch players, even England when they were launching satellites back in the day. All those launches combined to space, you're talking about between 25 and 35,000. They're talking 15,000 flights between just their 50 rockets here. Now, here's the thing. If you'd said to me, and we were talking this a little bit last night, if you were to say to me, hey, uh, if we're talking 10 launches for each of them, so that's 300 to 500 missions, I could easily see that happening. SpaceX doing three to 500 missions, they could knock that out in a few years. It sounds like probably five, 10 years, no problem. Yeah, exactly. But hundreds i i don't know about that number i mean i'm glad they're being ambitious but the big thing comes into mind of safety and making sure that they do things correctly and you know okay fine you're talking i mean you're talking these rocket cores rather than something like the space shuttle which is probably the most sophisticated thing we've ever built but um yeah and my, my other question this and and i and Sawyer, when we had this discussion last night uh i i, I brought this up Will the market allow for such a thing? I don't think it will. I don't think there is that kind of market. You know, I don't think that the launch services market is such that it actually has that need to go ahead and launch that much. I just, I just don't, I, I don't see it. Because the other thing, too, we talked about is SpaceX's backlog. Uh, once that's up and over and done with, then what? So I, I I just don't think that the the launch services market can actually sustain that kind that, that kind of activity. I know what Elon Musk wants to do. He's kind of looking at these boosters as sort of you know FedEx trucks, if you will, and trying to to use them as such. But uh, you know you, you and and we've had this discussion on this program several times about you know not treating rockets of like FedEx trucks, but it, as you know. <laughs> the things that can come up and bite you if you're not too careful. And uh, to uh, kind of reiterate what um, Mike Leinbach was saying uh, at uh, the Northeast Astronomy Forum, again, reusability ain't that easy. 
and you, you really got to watch it with these things. I think the, the launch rate's a pipe dream, to be honest with you. The other thing, too, I'm going to mention here, that BFR was basically not shown or not even in the mix at, uh, at the Kennedy Space Center, because apparently, according to the piece here, uh, Musk wants to go ahead and launch BFR out of Brownsville. And because basically the he feels that the Kennedy Space Center and uh, and Vandenberg are just going to be too busy to uh, to accommodate BFR, so the, the that the uh, it's just not going to be there. So he did not even include BFR on the expansion list. So it, it I just found that kind of kind of interesting with that because he he's talking about actually getting rid of the other two boosters. He has all. He, you know, uh, Falcon Heavy apparently is going to have a finite lifetime, and the uh, Falcon 9 Block 5 is going to also have a finite uh, period of time. So my thought is he just wants to launch out of, um, out of Brownsville, his own facility. I, I just don't know what, what direction the company's going in right now as far as where they want to launch, launch their, their BFR. Or the the big Falcon rocket. It doesn't sound like you know KSC is going to be in the mix, and it doesn't sound like um, doesn't that sound like Vandenberg is going to be in the mix. That's a stay tuned, by the way, for BFR. Um, I know Musk is saying he'd like to see BFR up and going uh, in like the early 2020s. I just judging by how well Falcon Heavy worked, we waited about what sorry about seven years for that. Uh, that was a um, little less, actually, but it's about six, depending on how you count, about six years or so, which honestly in the spaceflight industry right now is a very quick turnaround. Yeah, it is. You know, that I'll give you. Um, but in the, it, the initial date for, uh, for Falcon Heavy was, um, I believe, uh, 2012. And... Uh, it, it was early 2013 was the first number that they gave, yeah. It was still five years after their initial promise. Right, so I'm guessing, you know, judging by 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 that lesson, I'm I'm gonna guess that there we'll extend that out too. We'll probably say about five year, another five years from like the 2021 launch date that Elon Musk is talking about. So we're talking what about uh, 2026, something like that, 2027. I mean, for a rocket that'll eventually get to Mars, that's about the time frame that would sound right. I mean, 2021 doesn't sound right. Here's the thing. With Elon Musk, uh, we call it, I know you, Gene, you and I, we've talked about it as Elon Musk time. And yes. It's The thing is, take whatever number he gives you and add a few years to make it seem realistic, and that's probably what's going to happen. The 2021 doesn't sound very realistic. Add five years and say 2026, and I say that's 100% within reach for them. I get that they're trying to push the bounds, but at the same time, you got to have a little bit of realism there of like, all right, we're probably not going to hit 2021, 2023, 24, you could say it would seem likely, and then it's only a year or two delay. 25, 26 would sound 100% reasonable in my book, but, you know, that's just I'm, my personal opinion. My, I'm, I'm, I'm actually going to extend that out one more year and say 2027 because, again, BFR is, is just going to be a long haul. Um, especially since it's going to be, uh, you know, human rated and so on. It's also going to be going on a long haul and it's a big Falcon rocket. One video that he's envisioning using it, I just don't see it. 
Uh, I mean, that's like using the Saturn V to get from New York to Tokyo. I just, I just don't see that. If they can fix the problem of not shattering windows within a 10-mile radius, then I can see it. But <laughs> the, you got I, that kind of minor detail and also flying a giant explodable rocket over highly populated areas. But again, the big thing is just if they can get this thing flying into space, that's – and I'm sure they can. But it's just interesting that in all of the videos that we've seen for years and the renderings of it, the big thing has been there's BFR standing right on top of 39A that launched people to the moon is now going to launch people to Mars. And here we are now talking about moving it to Texas. Yeah, because, again, uh, Musk is basically saying that he um, he just simply cannot get the uh, uh, the capacity Um out of uh, out of Cape Canaveral or Vandenberg Air Force Base to handle all Falcon 9 and Falcon Heavy missions. So he is dedicating the South Texas launch site to BFR. Which, I mean, it, I guess that's a smart way to do it because then you don't have to refurbish all the launch pads a million times like they had to do with 39A for Falcon Heavy, having to refurbish it for, you know, for months trying to get it ready for it. At least, you know, it's one less thing to worry about. But And you've got your own launch site. You don't have to go ahead and you, you still have to go ahead and deal with the FAA and all that, but you, you um, you've got your own facility that you can manage. You're, you're not leasing it from, you know, the U.S. taxpayer. Um, and also you're kind of not rebuilding antiquated 1960s and 70s technology to update it to 2018. Right. So, you know, in, in their in their defense, that's probably why you're getting out from you know, sort of out from underneath the, you know, the finger of, uh, of, you know, the space agency or, or the, you know, the military, you still have to go ahead and file with the FAA. You still have to go through all that. You still have to run through that gauntlet, but you have to, you know, your, your, your basic, this is your own material and you can, you can treat it as such. It, it probably does in the long run. And, uh, Again, it's we'll see how that launch rate ends up actually going. We'll see where we go from there. But uh, I, I could see them doing, you know, launching 30 or 50 of those rockets, building them and launching them, say, 10, 15 times each. But the current numbers are crazy. But if they are going to do that, they're going to need that new facility. And I think the idea of building a new facility right outside the cave, right near your landings, between the landing zone and the launch pad is a great idea. Kind of like Blue Origin has their facility already along that same stretch of roadway. Right, so. right. I reiterate too that the market just doesn't have the capacity, if you will, to go ahead and service all those launches. It just doesn't. I and mean, plus, you're not everybody's going to go with 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 Elon. I'm 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 sorry. There there there's going to be too many choices out there. You're you're going to have Blue Origin, as you pointed out, Sawyer, out there with uh, New Shepard or New Glenn. You're going to have um, uh, you're going to have uh, the company that was formerly known as Orbital ATK out there with the Omega. You're going to have uh, uh, ULA with, with Vulcan. Um, let's not put aside our friends across the ocean there. You're going to have uh, Ariane Space with Ariane 6. The Indians are, are in on it. Uh, ISRO is getting very, very competitive with their with their launches. JAX is still there um, as, as a choice. Uh, you, you know, the, the Russia's still there as a choice. You know they're going to have Angara coming online. There's going to be a lot of choices for uh, for somebody that wants to put a payload into orbit, even if it is just a comsat or something like that. And 
not everybody's going to hop on the SpaceX bandwagon. So, we'll, you know, the launch capacity that, that Elon Musk is looking at just ain't there. I'm sorry. I can see that, but it's something we're definitely going to have to keep an eye on. And uh, I know you're wanting to send it already. Go ahead and send that fa- that uh, hate mail to mailbagatalkiesbaseonline.com. Oh. We'll read it, I promise. I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> Tweet us at Talking Space, Facebook, Talking Space there. We're used to it. Just go ahead and send it along. Or uh, I know some of you actually tweeted agreeing with us, and uh, it's a select few, but we appreciate every opinion out there, agreement or disagreement. But <laughs> anyway, then let's uh, let's continue along away from uh, SpaceX launch rates and stuff, and uh, talk about a few other ISS launches. Told you we'd be coming back to that. Uh, before we go to a previous launch, we're actually going to jump ahead to an upcoming launch, and that is the next ISS resupply mission, and that is CRS-15, which will be launched aboard a SpaceX Falcon 9 from Kennedy Space Center, or Cape Canaveral Air Force Station, technically. And uh, Gene, I know recently they just held a little discussion about some of the science set to go up on board this mission, and uh, one of our favorites from last episode is included on that, but uh, besides that, what do we have coming up <laughs> on uh, CRS-15? Yeah, it looks like good old Simon uh, is about ready to uh, make a call on the International Space Station. Simon standing for a Crew Interactive Mobile Companion. Uh, this coming, I'm looking at the uh, Airbus uh, website here, the Airbus Space website. Um, and they, in concert with uh, DLR, the... Uh, the, the German space agency developed this little onboard companion. Uh, f- it has its own little AI on board uh, to just kind of refresh, refresh folks. And this is just, um, it, it's an experiment that's going to be uh, overseen by, uh, by DLR. It's really all about AI and artificial intelligence and the AI finally coming about and understand to, to understand, to reason and yeah, to learn. Um, and it's all about trying to develop this, this little, little, this, this critter, um, to, uh, become sort of like a flight assistance system. Uh, it will be sort of a free flyer drifting around the, uh, the, the European module on board the ISS. And, uh, I don't know, we, we've, we've, Sawyer, you and I, we, we, we kind of looked at this and we kind of get, you know, well, we were a little it, bit creeped out by it. it yeah, the frankly. last episode title, <laughs> Creepy Face in Space, was because I was trying to go up with the title, and I'm like, this thing is creepy, because it really does kind of look, you know. I, I was thinking back to, um, anyone remember the movie? Do you remember the movie? I think it was Moon, uh, where it had that AI that was like the smiley face and the frowny face and had the kind of emojis of the day. I think this was like back in the, you know. 2009 2010-ish somewhere around there. Do you remember that movie? I have it. I haven't, you know, this is this is this is kind of sad, but I have it somewhere and I have not touched it yet. Well, if you haven't so, uh if you haven't seen it or you have, that had an AI on board their lunar space station and it basically had like a a face of how it was doing. So it would be a smiley face emoji, frowny face emoji before emojis got big. Um that's kind of what this made me think of, but uh, yeah, all I could say is Simon says keep that creepy thing away from me. Yeah, that, that's that was my <laughs> that was my thought um, uh, when I first saw this thing. But okay, you know, we'll we'll see how it works. I know the Japanese have got something similar. 
uh, on, on board Kibo right now. Um, some little little robot to kind of keep the astronauts uh, company and so on. I forget the name the name of it escapes me. But uh, I know they have a similar experiment going. I don't know if we've got anything planned like that. Um, but I, I guess, too, it's just a collection just to see how, how good AI can be used in an effort to, I don't know, maybe combat, uh, uh, maybe to have this thing, you know, help help on board in some manner or to... I don't know, just, just kind of have somebody around to talk to, you know, I mean, maybe, maybe we might even see it, um, it down with, with down to earth applications for, for people that are, that are, that are dealing with depression or something. I don't know. I mean, it's a stretch, but, uh, it, it, it's, it's a possibility, but all, all I know is if I saw this thing floating around, you know, looking at me sideways, I'd want to you know well step on it but anyway well uh, um, anyway i'm sorry gene i'm afraid i can't do that but, uh, <laughs> we talked about um, these last time so what else we got going up okay one of the things that we've got going on is a uh one another rodent research uh kind of thing but this one is to take a look at the gastrointestinal tract and in other words we're looking at well studying rodent droppings but uh, we're, they're going to be looking at uh, how what they call gut microbia or in, in mammalian health and how it affects spaceflight over time. It basically is just to see how the, the intestinal tract works over time and, and to see um, how, how things respond because this is going to be really, really critical uh, during a long-term uh, space flights, let's say to Mars or, or something like that. And the idea is basically to, and I'm looking at the, the, web, the NASA website right now, quote, identifying contributing factors and supporting development of countermeasures to protect astronaut health during long-term term missions. And what they say for um, any type of Earth applications or basically medical applications here and I'm quoting directly from the website, many disorders of human gastrointestinal, immune, metabolic, and sleep systems on Earth are affected by you know, gut microbia. Uh, and this investigation is going to provide some new insight into uh, interventions targeting that imbalance and uh, trying to treat any kind of, you know, any gastrointestinal uh, disorders. Um, for this particular flight, I believe it's going to be a group of 20 female mice, um, and uh, the, uh, uh, they'll be on, on board to, make, to take a look and make sure that uh, their, I guess their gastrointestinal uh, stuff is, is operating and see how it operates on, under harsh conditions. There's also a, uh, a cancer thera therapy experiment flying. Um, uh, called uh, Anjax, basically a, a drug therapy to go ahead and try to treat uh, vascular changes in the human body. So that's another, there's a, uh, what they call a, uh, a chemical garden flying. Chemical gardens are in a, inorganic silicate structures that resemble plant-like structures that form upon placing together a soluble metal or salt and what they're trying to do is they're trying to understand the physics of nanotube growth. 
in in these things and uh tr so in other words they're they're going to go ahead and take a look at this and try to uh determine you know what you know, structural motives wall thickness element compositions and and tube dimensions form it's basically to to address the interrelationships between physics chemistry and biology of these these uh these these structures as they form they're hoping to get some engineering data out of this but uh you know a better understanding of corrosion and 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 cement science for uh for you know tube walls for catalytic applications and chemical sensing um, we're going to go into a little bit more on this as 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 launch time come, goes forward because I've got uh, there was a there was a presser about all of these experiments and I'm hoping to go ahead and get some cut, cuts from that uh, that conference for you soon. So as we approach launch time, we'll get more and more in, into the uh, the experiments on this. So one thing with these CRS missions and with all of these resupply missions is the stuff that they come up with to send to space. It's it's ingenious. And again, who would think that being able to study little microbes could help with, you know, our insides and studying rats and how that'll affect us and uh, even the creepy faces, what impact that might have back here on Earth and for artificial intelligence in the future. It's it's unbelievable the amount of stuff they can pack inside these tiny capsules and the amount we get back from it. And if whenever people always ask, so why do we still send stuff into space? Why do we still have the space station? Blah, blah, blah. These missions, this description right there should answer it. This is just one of 15 CRS missions, and that doesn't even include the nine orbital slash orbital ATK resupply missions, which that leads us into the fact that we also had an orbital ATK launch as well since we were on the air last, and that was the OA-9 mission. That successfully lifting off from the Mid-Atlantic Regional Spaceport in Wallops Island, Virginia on May 21st, just around 4.45 a.m. Eastern Time, and that capsule remains, I believe, on board the International Space Station. And Gene, you happen to be in Virginia, although not exactly at Mars, the regional yeah, spaceport yeah, for that we, launch. That's right. So, we're, um, so just add a little bit, a little bit of color around uh, that that particular launch. The company had a um, a tendency to name the spacecraft after individuals that uh, have have gone before and uh, th that had made a significant impact. Uh, but this one was named for uh, J.R. Thompson. Uh, he was really, really critical at uh, the beginning of orbital sciences and orbital ATK. And uh, also he served as the director of the Marshall Space Flight Center for NASA. So on on both sides, uh, he was he was really, really a... Uh, a, a pivotal, um, a pivotal individual, and uh, it was aptly named. Uh, this particular vehicle was aptly named for him. Um, to uh, to to go into where I was, Sawyer. Yeah, I was actually um, at uh, at uh, Colonial Williamsburg, and um, uh, we were. Uh, I was trying to get some individuals to come over to to take a look. We posted some stuff over in the hotel and. Unfortunately, there were no takers, but th that was okay. It was it was me that morning, and I I stationed myself um, to the east, uh, looking over to um, Shinkatique there from where I was, and uh, right over me was an old 18th century farmhouse uh, that was part of the uh, um, 
part of, uh, of, of the Colonial Williamsburg setup. And I believe that particular farmhouse was, was, you know, original equipment, if you will. So this was actually a real 18th century farmhouse dated back to like the 1700s. And watching uh, Antares reach for the sky from that vantage point and seeing it climb over this, this 18th century farmhouse, um, wow, uh, it was just, it, it was just such a, a beautiful picture to see this little, little torch, if you will, with a, with a tail trailing behind it, uh, this glowing orange, uh, this orb, uh, reaching for the sky, uh, with, um, with the 18th century, uh, trappings around it. And it was sort of like the 18th century, meaning the 21st. And as I'm watching this thing, I kind of wondered, you know, I mean, Thomas Jefferson was uh, governor here in, in, in Williamsburg. And I, I kind of wonder, what would the population think of, of the 18th century population think of something like that? And, you know, I, I'm, I'm thinking Jefferson would have been enthralled. Uh, um, but I think a few other folks might have been scared, you know, but it it, it was still just this this really interesting juxtaposition of, uh, of, of the old meeting the new. And uh, it, it was sort of a poetic moment for me. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm getting a little existential here, but it, it, it's, it, it was still still a, a moment. In fact, I'm talking about it, and I'm, I'm, the, the hairs are starting to raise in the back of my neck while I'm, while I'm talking about it, because it, it was just one of those moments. You really just can't put it into words. I mean, that that sounds so cool. It's I mean, you and I, we've seen launches from three miles away. We've seen launches from hundreds of miles away. And that probably sounds like the most unique launch viewing site of any launch. And to get it that, you know, an early morning, crisp, clear night. Uh, uh -huh. Yeah, I'm, Sawyer, I'm, I'm very it was jealous, beautiful. Sarah, let me just say that. It was beautiful. I mean, uh, it was just one of those moments that are just forever, you know, kind of fused into your brain. I don't know what's more, what was more dramatic, watching that from a from in front of this 18th century farmhouse, or actually being at at, at Chincoteague and and at uh, the the Mid Atlantic Regional Spaceport and watching it from there. I'm sure the sound and fury would have been absolutely fabulous as it always is but it was still kind of a moment i mean i've seen these from here in in the northeast um in from my home here and i know there, there's some uh excellent photography this was kind of interesting this was really cool that's fantastic but uh yeah so oa9 still up there and uh well I don't think there's going to be an OA-10. It may be NG-10 because uh, <laughs> Orbital Sciences have been around for about 30 years, and then they were acquired by ATK. Uh, so they merged and became Orbital ATK. Well, now Orbital ATK is being absorbed by Northrop Grumman, and rather than keeping Orbital Northrop or anything like that, they are now to be called the Northrop Grumman Innovation System. Is that right, Gene? Did I get that? Yeah, that's. Oh, God. I'm sorry, I got that right then. Yeah, you <laughs> you, you got it. Um, you know that's exactly what what it was. The um, I believe the deal went through just a a, a few days ago. I believe the the deal was a was a 7.8 billion dollar deal. Now the entire company Orbital ATK is indeed part of uh, uh part of Northrop Grumman. I thought it was very interesting. 
uh, Sawyer, when the name came down, um, that uh, the word space wasn't in there. Uh, now, I know ATK was into other things, but um, yeah, it's, it's, it's an end of an era and, and a new beginning um, out there for, uh, for, uh, for Northrop Grumman. My question is this, and, and this is just, just me asking this question. Um, when we were Orbital Sciences, um, in fact, I, I remember talking to um, um, Frank Culbertson, who, former space shuttle astronaut, and now, you know, then with Orbital Sciences, uh, and I, uh, we, we just had a really, really, you know, offline chat, and this was during the Antares uh, A1 launch, um, basically saying that the, the tenor was very different um, over here than, than other, than other launches that I'm from another firm I'm not going to mention. Uh, there was no bravado. There was no, you know, this, it's just, okay, we're here. Um, let's see if this works. You know, if it works, great. If it doesn't, well, we'll go back to the drawing board, fix it and go fly again. And there just seemed to be an openness. They wanted to, to go ahead and make sure that we got the story out there, that we make sure we had all the materials to get the story right. Um, they were extraordinarily helpful with, with, with us from a media standpoint. I told uh, Frank Culbertson there just seemed to be a sort of an air of, of, of quiet competence around here. And I'm just, you know, I, I'm just hoping that that, air is is delivered from orbital sciences to you know it they they kind of continued that tradition with orbital atk um i'm hoping it continues with north of grumman um i'm i'm sure they have their own you know way of dealing with us media critters but uh i'm hoping that 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 kind of openness and that kind of um uh, that that kind of attention to to making sure that we get the story right and getting us what we needed um, is going to be there. Uh, from but from what I understand too, there's there's a whole new leadership team. I guess it's a they they look at it as a as a good move for for uh, for the company for both firms. Uh, Northrop Grumman, I guess, wanted the piece of the launch action, if you will, and um, they got it by buying into it. Uh, and, uh, so they grabbed a lot of stuff from Orbital and, uh, uh, they've, they've now got the, all of the, uh, the Orbital ATK, uh, you know, contracts and, and things of that nature. So they're actually in the launch business now. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with this new division, how it's going to strike, strike forward, how things are going to move forward with, uh, with the Omega, uh, vehicle that's being designed, um, for uh, for the U.S. military and for NASA, uh, it, it's I mean essentially they've got a a bundle of logistics and a bundle of support for both of those programs for you know both Antares and for the new Omega coming up. And I understand too that uh, uh, there is going to be some movement to bring Antares into a. Uh, into um, the commercial market for commercial launches as well. So uh, there are some exciting things that are going to come out of this. You know, I'm, I'm hoping, too, that, that we don't 
go, com you know, as much as I hate to say this, I'm hoping that we, we don't go totally Hollywood on this and, and, and try to, you know, try to shun the traditions that the orbital sciences started with us press types and, and, you know, that, that good partnership is always going to be there. Yeah, because they they really did cultivate a good good relationship with us. I mean, grant you, any you know press corporate relationship has got to be a little bit on the adversarial side, um, in order to really really work. Uh, but um, it, it just seemed that that these guys, at least as orbital sciences, really went out of their way to make sure that we we got we got the 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 data that we needed to 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 move forward with any story that we were, we were, we were trying to, trying to get at. So, um, my fingers crossed that that tradition continues. We'll definitely have to see. I mean, again, that company is going through a few buyouts in a few years now, but I mean, Northrop Grumman is obviously a major player in the industry and a big name. Orbital was a big player in the game. And so we'll see how the two of them end up doing together. And, uh, we're gonna have to keep an eye on that. And, uh, I don't expect many changes, but hopefully that does mean more contracts for them, maybe more military contracts, and uh, we'll see what happens with um, Northrop Grumman Innovation Systems. Yeah, you know, I, again, that name it doesn't still roll off the tongue. No, it does not, and um, that that that's one of one of the things that. <laughs> so we can just—I we'll just... uh, mean, we can call them Ingus Northrop Grumman Innovation Systems, or just NG, although that could have some. Uh, not so, good connotations. Yeah, exactly. We're not going to go there. Not gonna? And yeah. <laughs> well, I'm not going to go there. <laughs> Just keep giving me NGs here, and uh, I'll keep going with it. Anyway. <laughs> uh, but a Okay. All right, so I know this is what uh, we've been waiting for. We got two major stories coming out of Mars in the last week. Not even since we've been off the air. In the last week. Uh, and we begin with the reason why we are recording this or why we started our recording at 1 a.m. in the morning on <laughs> June 14th. A, because of my work schedule. But B, today we had an announcement from the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in California. Uh, unfortunately, this is probably not the better of the two Mars stories. But um, I don't know if you remember when we first got on the air, we had on one of the Mars rover drivers, Scott Maxwell, and they were campaigning for the uh, Safe Spirit campaign it was even in the early days of hashtags hashtag safe spirit um well now the hashtag is save oppie as uh the opportunity rover encounters a dust storm that is 15 million square miles on the surface of mars just just for reference russia is 6.6 .6 million square miles so this thing could cover russia twice and poor opportunity that's been operating for almost 15 years on the surface now caught on it and it usually sends regular signals back to Earth at the same time, same bat time, same bat channel. But since Sunday, it has not been doing that. And Gene, uh, they're not ruling her dead yet, are they? No. Um, that was one of the things, that was one of the speculations that uh, uh, we had. Uh, now, this dust storm started, I guess it was, and uh, we weren't exactly sure what it was going to do yet. Um, but, uh, during today's press conference, uh, the project manager for the, uh, Mars Exploration Rover Opportunity, uh, John Callis kind of really, really described where we are currently with this. Back on, um, May 30th, uh, MRO 
the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter saw the first indications of a dust storm on Mars. Um, they notified the MER project on Friday evening that the dust storm uh, was headed in a direction that may affect uh, the Opportunity rover. Uh, at that time, we already had a three-day plan on the rover that was running over the weekend. Over the weekend, we did see increases in atmospheric opacity, which is a, a measure of the amount of dust in the atmosphere. So on June 2nd, we observed an atmospheric opacity of 0.6, which is about normal for this time of year. The rover was generating uh, 645 watt-hours. Uh, the next day, uh, the atmospheric opacity jumped to 1.5. So that's a pretty significant increase in one day, not uncommon for the onset of a storm. Uh, we continue to uh, watch things as uh, over the weekend. Um, and then on Monday morning, uh, we began our next planning day for the rover, and we at that point decided that we needed to cease science operations and to configure the rover for a lower power operation uh, as this dust storm was increasing and uh, looked to be more threatening. Um, so on Monday, uh, we measured the atmospheric capacity at uh, a little over 2, and at that point, the energy production of the rover had dropped uh, by almost half to 345 watt-hours. Uh, we continued on the next day with another low-power plan, uh, and we uh, were unable to get a measurement of atmospheric capacity on the next day because it had likely increased to such a high level that our ability to measure it um, is, is diminished. But we did uh, measure the energy production of the rover, and it had dropped to about 133 watt-hours. So again, by more than a factor of two in one day. Concern level continued to increase. Uh, so on, on the next uh, planning day, which was Wednesday, June 6, um, we decided that we were going to do a three-day, uh, excuse me, a two-day plan, and we um, chose not to have the rover communicate to us on the first day, but wait until the second day. And, and this is a power-saving measure. So essentially, the rover just wakes up in the morning, receives the commands, go back, goes back to sleep, sleeps through the night into the next day, a brief wake up in the morning, going back to sleep, and then wakes up in the afternoon, tries a measurement of atmospheric opacity, communicates with one of our orbiting uh, relay satellites, um, and then goes back to sleep. So very short duration of, of uptime. Um, however, we do want to maintain some level of activity on the rover because that's what keeps the rover warm. So we're trying to not only manage power consumption, but manage the, the temperatures on, on the rover. So on Friday, we, we planned a, uh, a three-saw plan to carry us through the weekend. Again, we were implementing a very low-power plan where we essentially shut everything down except uh, a one wake-up for measurement of atmospheric capacity and a, a coincident uh, communication with a, a relay um, orbiter, in that case it was the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. So we did get that data down on the ground. That was on, on Sunday, June 10th. Um, the rover was still active at that point, but the atmospheric opacity was estimated at 10.8, and that is a record high for measurements on Mars. So it's, it's completely black on Mars. It's completely dark. Um, the energy production of the rover was measured at only 22 watt-hours. Even though we heard from the rover, the rover was under master sequence control, I made the decision to declare a spacecraft emergency because there wasn't enough energy for the rover to sustain activities, and it would be dropping into what we refer to as a low-power fault. This is where the rover senses it doesn't have enough energy to maintain uh, activities, 
and it essentially turns everything off with only the master clock connected to the batteries. So all, all energy that's coming out of the solar arrays is going into the batteries and, and the master clock. That was the last communication we had from the rover. We did listen for a fault window on the rover. We also sent commands to elicit a response from the rover, and we've heard nothing since then. So our uh, expectation at this point is that the rover has uh, gone to sleep. It's in this low power mode, and that will remain in that low power mode until there's sufficient energy to charge the batteries back above a certain threshold. At that point, the rover will autonomously uh, try to wake up and communicate with us. So that basically describes how we got here. It, it was a little bit of a long slog, and I do apologize, uh, but that basically really really and succinctly said what kind of soup we're in with this, this vehicle. Um, again, Opportunity is uh, about 15 years on the surface of Mars. Uh, it was only designed for a 90-day mission, so... Um, if something did go kind of fluey, you know, we, we, I'd say we got our money's worth out of it, but we're, we're not giving up the, the, the ship on opportunity here just yet. We're, we'll just have to see how well it weathers this particular storm. Again, the, if, if you are on the surface of Mars right now in Perseverance Valley, um, there is a sort of an opacity meter or tau meter, if you will, um, it shows what you know a typical day on Mars would look like as far as opacity is concerned. What you know a dusty day, what a dark day on Mars would look like, and finally where we are right now. We are basically at a 10, 10.8, almost 11, which means it is dark. This this dust storm where opportunity is is blotting out the sun. When you have a solar powered rover. That's not necessarily a good thing. Um, so we're hoping to get some kind of... Uh, the revival procedures for the rover are set. Um, and Sawyer, too, if you could go ahead, he will go ahead and describe what we need to do to revive uh, Opportunity from its little slumbers. So Sawyer, if you can go ahead and run that for me, please. If the rover is generating less than 22 watt-hours of energy... Uh, that we won't have enough energy even to sustain the mission clock, and we'll have what's also called a clock fault, which means the rover doesn't know what time it is. And so that, at that point, the rover goes into an autonomous mode that when it does have power to wake up, it sets timers at regular intervals just to wake up to see if it can communicate to Earth. Um, it waits until there's sufficient energy on the solar array, so it's going to use the solar arrays to know when it's daytime, and we will be prepared to listen and respond to the rover when that happens. If we lose the, the operational clock, there's still sort of a fail-safe plan, if you will, to go ahead and have the, the, the spacecraft still, you know, kind of rouse itself and try to look for the sun and, and see, uh, see if it's there. And if it's not, just go back to sleep. Sort of like, you know, hitting, hitting the snooze button, you know, like so many of us do. And like, I know what I'm going to do after we record this tomorrow morning. Um, but um, individuals were sort of giving up, giving up on, on the spacecraft at this point, thinking that it was done. But no, no, the, the, there are still some rabbits that uh, that NASA can go ahead and, and, and pull out of its hat. Um, there was some discussion, too, about uh, uh, the battery levels. You know, since these batteries are, you know, they're, they're 15 years old, 
I, mean, I know what my cell phone battery is like after three years. I end up replacing the darn cell phone because <laughs> it doesn't hold a charge. Try two years. Yeah, you know. Admittedly, though, again, this is before planned obsolescence, although none of NASA's uh, vehicles are planned obsolescence. But now they do use RTGs and nuclear power, which kind of prevents this problem a little bit. But, I mean, again, the fact that opportunity, reminder to everyone, Spirit and Opportunity were both expected to last three months. That was their lifespan. Spirit made it till, I believe, 2010, and Opportunity is just in a power-saving mode, it sounds like, in 2018. That's crazy. Yeah, I mean, and, and Sawyer, you also alluded to the fact that we now use RTGs, and, and that's the, the reason why, again, too. And uh, One of the things that was brought up in the presser was about, didn't anybody think about the need to get like a little, you know, squeegee or something like that on, on these solar panels, so this way they can just kind of brush off the dirt or, or kind of, you know, figure out a way to sort of, you know, either put the solar panels on an angle of some sort to kind of, you know, let the dirt roll off and so on. Sure, as you pointed out, this was only supposed to be a 90-day run. Nobody envisioned either one of these spacecraft to uh, to go as far as they have. And uh, so the idea, too, is you try to keep things simple, especially when, when the nearest repairman is, is, you know, millions and millions of miles away. Although, can I just say, I would love to actually have a set of Martian windshield wipers for my windscreen instead of <laughs> you know, the solar panels there, but... Technically, it did get its own sort of windshield wipers with a this last major dust storm, at least back in the uh, mid-2000s, around 07, I believe, when uh, it seemed like it was about to lose all of its power, and then a dust, de dust devil came and uh, cleared it away. But, I mean, you can always hope another one of those happens. Well, the, the, sorry, you, you pointed, you actually pointed out a, an interesting procedure, and that's what they've been doing to, to keep the, the, the solar panels dusted off and cleaned off, they would actually deliberately drive the rover into these little dust devils, if you will, to go ahead and blow the dust off of the uh, the solar panels, and, and gosh darn it, it works. Um, but yeah, there was actually a comparison between um, the two dust storms that you had, you had mentioned, and uh, uh, both uh, uh, Rich Zurich, who is the, uh, the science uh, lead on, on, this, uh, on, on the Mars Exploration Rover's and John Callis kind of discussed the differences between the 2007 dust storm and kind of where we are now. Um, let's see. So the 2007 dust storm opportunity, uh, you know, fared well through that. Um, we we may, were able to maintain um, uh, sequence control the entire time through that dust storm. But we did have periods of time where we didn't hear from the rover for four days, where we chose to have it uh, minimize activities. Um, and then communicate with us on the fourth day. Um, so we, we were able to ride that out, but we were always under sequence control. Here, uh, as of today, uh, our expectation is that we've already done, gone into low power fault. These are just historic low energy levels for the vehicle. Uh, this is Rich Zurich. I want to point out that there's tremendous variability in the opacity across the planet, whereas Opportunity is seeing members of this uh, tau as a measure of that opacity at 14, Curiosity is seeing more like two to three at the moment, although that number's rising. We hope that maybe it'll open up and clear skies over the rover. Uh, one of the unusual things about this storm was the fact that it started as a local storm, which grew, 
normally those local storms kind of sweep on by Opportunity Site and go down into the Southern Hemisphere before spreading out into a much bigger event. That didn't happen this time. The storm sort of stalled over the site and has produced this record measurement of an opacity of above 10. So the other thing, too, as you pointed out, was the... Um, uh, the this is a, a kind of... A, an old salt, if you will, on Mars. Uh, it is our oldest set of eyes and ears. Um, but overall, the spacecraft is actually doing pretty well uh, in in Perseverance Valley there it, before you know everything kind of hit the fan. And John Callis was asked about the the overall health of the spacecraft, um, and uh, he had the following to say. Yeah, prior to uh, the, the storm. Uh, the vehicle was in actually remarkably good health. Um, uh, yeah, you were recalling that we, at a time, had to drive the rover backwards because we were concerned about wear on one of the uh, steering uh, drive actuators. Uh, that's actually been well-behaved. We've been doing that for now mo almost a decade. Um, yeah, there is one arthritic joint on the robotic arm, but we've been able to compensate for that. Um, we did have a challenge with one of the steering mechanisms. Um, so we've actually stopped using that steering mechanism. So we're now a two-wheel a two-wheel steering vehicle instead of a four-wheel steering vehicle. So we drive more like a car. Um, uh, but other than that, the vehicles uh, it was in remarkably good health. The cameras were in excellent shape. The alpha particle electric spectrometer was collecting excellent data. So uh, we're eager for this storm to clear, recover the rover, and continue on with our exploration. I mean, dust will be a, a, a concern. Uh, we'll likely have some dust on the optics, but uh, our experience from the last dust storm is that the dust actually sheds off the optics uh, over a short period of time, and, and we can calibrate out any remaining uh, specs on the, on, the, on the glass. You know, for a 15-year-old spacecraft that's been, you know, puttering around Mars, it's in fairly good shape. We still have all of our science in instruments. It's a little bit on, on the arthritic side. It is not driving backward anymore. They still, you know, the, uh, um, the rover itself drives a little bit more like a car these days because it's only got two-wheel drive instead of four-wheel drive. But uh, all in all, it's it's still in relatively good shape, and they've learned how to how to operate this vehicle. Um, it's you know it's a tried and true uh, spacecraft, and uh, it's it's currently our eyes and ears in that particular uh, set of uh, you know that particular part of Mars. One of the other questions too, and Sawyer, you know, we've all been there where we have a a sick relative or a, or a relative in the hospital or something something along those lines. And they were one of the, the the questions they ask is how the team is holding up. And I've seen some some stuff on on Twitter uh, from various folks about uh, uh, about how the team is holding up. And um, I'm going to go ahead and uh, uh, let John Callis himself go ahead and describe how his team how how his team is is, is holding up. This team has a, a, a very strong bond with the rover. Uh, you know, we have a very tight emotional connection with it. And, and we're concerned about it. I mean, obviously, uh, you know, we anthropomorphize this rover. And, you know, the analogy I would use right now, it's like you have a, a loved one in a coma in the hospital. You know, the doctors are telling you that, okay, you just got to give it time and she'll wake up. You know, all the vital signs are good, so it's just waiting it out. But, you know, if it's your 97-year-old grandmother, you're, you're going to be very concerned. And so we are. And, and, you know, 
by no means are we out of the woods here. Um, the storm is, is threatening, it, it's, and uh, we don't know how long it will last, and we, we don't know um, what the environment will be like once it clears. Um, so, yeah, we, we are all concerned, and, yeah, you can see it in, in, in the team members. I mean, the the team that worked on the MERS, the Mars Exploration Rover Spirit and Opportunity, is they're a fantastic group of people. We've had a few of them on the show, again, going way back to the days when Spirit was getting stuck. So we're talking early, early episodes of the show. And I mean, the fact that they've been going since this show is also really cool. But, you know, it's a fantastic group of people that's working on it. They're really dedicated and... I know they won't give up until they know they're never getting a signal back. And uh, even then, they're going to get as much science still as they can out of this. And even just the photos they've been posting of the sun disappearing and the information they're getting from this dust storm from that and their fleet of spacecraft around Mars is it's fantastic. So uh, best of luck to the rover and to everyone on that team. Yeah, two things, sir, before we, we, we part on, on this particular topic. Uh, give a tip of the hat to Doug Ellison, who over the weekend was really, really uh, giving a, a great explanation as far as what's going on on Mars. And I learned a lot more from him on that Sunday on how the batteries work and so on and what the conditions were currently out, out there on Mars than I did actually from the news conference. Um, he, was, he was really, really integral in, in, in giving me a great education as far as how, uh, how the Mars exploration rovers work and so on. So, Doug, a huge tip of the hat to you, and if you're not following him on Twitter, why? Um, also, to... Um, uh, Scott Maxwell, uh, aka Mars Rover Driver, um, you know, who's no longer with uh, with JPL, but um, he too has been been kind of jumping in on this and and uh, giving some additional background information. In fact, uh, just about twelve hours ago, he alluded to uh, to um, the batteries on board and basically said, "quote It should be said that one of the reasons the batteries are doing so well." is the Mars Exploration Rover's lead power engineer, Jennifer Herman. She, more than any other single individual, is why we survived the 2007 storm, and she, more than any other single individual, is why we're in such good shape for this storm. So um, I'm just giving Jennifer her kudos and mentioning her because Scott had uh, given her a, a bit of a tip of the hat as well for being a, for being a, a key uh, part of uh, of uh, opportunities you know possible survival in this so will opportunity get get out of this stay tuned we will see as as this um, uh, dust storm progresses we know it's impacting you know curiosity a little bit on on and curiosity is clear across the other side of the planet but uh keep watching the the, the nasa jpl website keep watching nasa.gov and uh we'll keep doing the same and we'll bring back any in information or any data that we possibly can for you so this is going to be a long haul just sit back, you know, grab the popcorn, um, and we'll just have to, to just stick it out with the rest of the uh, the Mars uh, Exploration Rover team. So stay tuned. Yes, yeah, so we will um, keep our eye on opportunity, even if uh, you can't really see it through the dust. But uh, best of luck to the team that's working on that rover, and uh, stay strong, Oppie. Stay strong. 
while we continue along then, we have another rover on Mars as well that's still going, and that is the Curiosity rover. And uh, Curiosity has been going on its way towards Mount Sharp, and it has found something fantastic, which, if you've heard the news, you may have heard it slightly wrong. <laughs> but Curiosity has found the building blocks of life. Now, I want to clarify, this is not confirming life has been found on Mars. However, the Curiosity rover has found some of the elements that are necessary for life to form, meaning that one point Mars may have had life on it or may have some form of microbial life on it. Again, all those are speculative, but we do know that there's even the possibility of the building blocks of life on Mars, which is really freaking cool. Yeah, Sawyer, the, this was one of the things that we a lot of people suspected, uh, but we didn't have the proof for it yet. Um, the new findings, you know, basically tough organic molecules in, you know, a, a three billion year old sedimentary rock near the surface, as well as seasonal variations um, in, in the methane uh, in the atmosphere uh, of, of Mars, you know, that we were kind of putting two, two and two together here. But to, to describe something, you know, it's it's like saying that, okay, fine, we found, you know, the Legos that are strewn around the floor, but whether or whether or not anybody built anything with these things is another story. We have not seen any kind of, uh, uh, you know, critter, fossilized or otherwise, running, running around Mars. And most importantly, uh, if you're walking on Mars barefoot, don't step on any Legos. It's painful, but... <laughs> yeah, that, you, Sorry, you don't want... Terrible joke. I had. Yeah, you, you don't trust me. You don't want to do it. Um, <laughs> the uh, but the, I mean the, to to also kind of throw some fuel to 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 your fire, Sawyer. Uh, to quote from uh, from the the Goddard Space Flight Center here, Curiosity has not determined, and I will say not underlined in red three times, not determined the source of the organic molecules, meaning that these things could be also generated from some sort of geologic process and not from life at all um or something else that we don't we just don't fully understand maybe at work could have come from this planet it could have come from an impact from a meteoroid of some kind that deposited it there's lots of unknowns about it but i mean just the fact that majority of living things give off methane of some kind and for the fluctuations that's one thing to find these molecules is another thing now, we're not talking like that uh, Antarctica meteorite from 20 or 30 years ago where they're like, oh, we think we found what looks like a microbe in it. We're, we're not talking anything like that, but we're talking more molecular as opposed to physical structure. Yeah, I mean, the other thing, too, is one of the instruments on board Curiosity, the Sample Analysis at Mars instrument, or SAM, had also kind of picked up some variations. You know, it, that was the one that was really, really critical in in finding these organic molecules um and uh so so hats off to, to the sam folks but what they tried to do to or to kind of identify the organic material in the martian soil it kind of drilled into sedimentary rocks as uh you know or or, or mudstones um in the areas around gale crater uh this this mudstone gradually formed about three you know formed billions of years ago from you know silt that accumulated in in this ancient lake bed that uh they think curiosity is in 
Um, the uh, samples were then analyzed by the SAM, SAM instrument. Um, it uses um, a small onboard oven to kind of heat these samples to about 900 degrees Fahrenheit or 500 degrees Celsius, if, if, if you follow that scale, and to go ahead and release organic molecules from the powdered rock. And this, apparently, that's how this was detected. You know, the finding of, of methane, you know, in the atmosphere and seasonal changes to that is also a little bit of a clue. But again, there might be something else at work. So uh, this is going to open up some doors for the Mars 2020 rover. This is obviously also going to open up a few doors of opportunity for ESA's ExoMars rover. Um, one of the other things I saw too out there was, well, Curiosity didn't find life, but Mars 2020 or ExoMars might. I'm sitting here and I'm saying, well, you have to remember too, the mission of the Mars Science Laboratory or Curiosity, it was not a... A biological mission. It was not a search for life mission. Uh, Curiosity was sent there to kind of follow the water, if you will, and kind of lay the the you know the foundation for looking for areas that we might want to send a biologic uh, mission to to try to see if we can we can really really get into the the layers of the of the surface and really really see if there was anything biologically active or now or later but that was not curiosity's mission curiosity was was sent there to go ahead and and follow the water if you will um it was more of a geologic mission but as as we as we said at the top of this sawyer there were a lot of news outlets that uh, i think got it wrong um in this basically saying that uh uh, well, you know, the the possibility of life on Mars is a little stronger. Yeah, it's, it is, you know, a little stronger to a degree. Or uh, some outlets basically said that, that they basically found the evidence for, for life. No, they didn't find life forms or any fossilized stuff. We still don't know if anything came together yet. We're not going to know for a very long time on that. And to, to put this into perspective, the... These, this was a, an experiment that was performed back in 2013, okay? So we wanted to make sure that we got everything right, and they kind of held off on this until, what, now 2018, to make sure that, that the answer was, was absolutely, totally, 100% correct, or at least with a confidence level that you could go over and publish a paper, which, which, was, which was what was done. Um, to uh, quote uh, uh, Michael Meyer, the, the, uh, the lead scientist for NASA's Mars Ex Exploration Program at NASA headquarters, are these signs for life? Uh, we don't know, but the, the results tell us that possibly we're on the right track. So it's, it's, uh, so even finding life, you're going to have to go through, if, even if you think you found it, you really got to go ahead and rigorously test it and rigor rigorously look at your, your 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 test results. You know, take a skeptical lie to them. Um, use the tools science gives you, and then go out. If you're if you're 99 and 44th, 100 percent sure, go for it and put the results to paper and let uh, let your um, let your colleagues uh, you know kind of sort it out, which is what 
we're kind of doing with, with this news. But again, has life found, been found on Mars? No. Does this, it just simply means that what a lot of people originally thought that organics do exist on the, on, on the planet and that there are possibly, you know, the building blocks are there, whether or whether or not those building blocks came together, <sighs> different story. So, you know, yeah, this is just another clue for the, uh, for, for finding life on Mars, but not, you know, this is, this is one note in the music of life, but not the music itself, as, as Dr. Carl Sagan would have said. But hey, it's a great start. So uh, congratulations to the teams working over there and uh, lots of good news coming out of Mars. Now, uh, there's still a few big stories to cover, but we're just going to go through them very quickly. So stick with us because they're still really great stories. First off, congratulations to the team that worked on the Juno mission that is currently orbiting around Jupiter. And uh, I shouldn't say worked on. I should say will continue to be working on as that mission now extended to at least 2021. And keep in mind, that is the farthest vehicle ever to use solar power, and that is still going around Jupiter, along with the Juno Cam, which is a, a camera on board that you, the public, can help decide where it takes pictures of, and that you, the public, then get to colorize and put out, and it it's done some fantastic outreach work and science work. So congratulations to the team working on Juno. Yeah, Sawyer, and, and really quick, the um, you have to remember, too, what Juno is going through right now. It is really going through an incredible radiation storm in, in and around around Jupiter. I mean, the radiation levels that it's being exposed to is just amazing. And for that spacecraft to go ahead and continue to, to work is just amazing. Also, to, to kind of give a tip of the hat to the Juno cam, that was a public outreach device. Juno's purpose is to go ahead and look under the hood of Jupiter to go ahead and see what makes it tick, you know, uh, that whole that whole process. Um, the, uh, so taking pretty pictures of, of, of the upper atmosphere was not exactly in, in the, in the game plan. So, and, and this Juno cam was essentially an afterthought. It really wasn't something that was radiation hardened. They didn't think it was going to get past eight perijoves or eight passes in, a, in that, that, um, uh, in, into that, that, that radiation realm, but gosh darn it, it's surviving. So that, I mean, that thing wins the Energizer Bunny Award, in my opinion, as far as the cameras are concerned. I mean, that mission deserves all the awards, to be perfectly honest. So. Yeah, I'm, that, that's, that's one heck of a, that's one heck, tough little spacecraft, it really is. Exactly. And uh, unfortunately, we do have to end with a few fond farewells. Um, the first one is Don Peterson, who was the first person ever to do a space shuttle spacewalk, uh, who passed away back on May 27th. Uh, he died at the age of 84. And of course, we know that we have uh, the amazing Alan Bean as well, who also passed away back on May 26th. Uh, in case you're unaware, Alan Bean was the fourth person to step foot on the moon as a part of Apollo 12. He also was on board the first ever U.S. space station, Skylab, on Skylab 3. And from there, went on to become one of the greatest space artists ever. Uh, incorporating some of his experiences on the moon and finally putting it on canvas with more of the colors than you could ever see with the 1970s cameras with textures and their fabulous pieces of artwork and a fabulous man who I've had the honor of meeting multiple times, having dinner with, and he is a class act who will 
undoubtedly be missed. You and me both, Sawyer. In fact, I've collected his works um, for some time, and um, I, I, I remember telling him um, one night that uh, I don't have to ask anybody that walked on the moon um, what it was like to, uh, to be there. Um, all I have to do is go into my own dining room because Alan tells me every night and um, he's relayed his experiences through his artwork and if you have not you know taken the time to take a look at um, the extraordinary artwork he, he is the legacy he's left behind um, please by all means I really do invite you to do so um, and uh, you know even if you can't grab one of the originals grab one of the the prints of some sort and uh, because not only will you get a autograph from from Alan and, and, and that process, but you'll probably also get uh, an autograph from, from a few of the other uh, moonwalkers or, or Apollo crews that uh, that went to the moon. But um, again, uh, great individual, great, great person, and one of my personal heroes uh, has left us. There's only four individuals that have walked on the moon now left. So that's, that's sobering. And I'm hoping that... Uh, those four individuals that are left will be able to go ahead and see the next uh, footfalls and the people that are that are going to pick up the baton uh, from where they left off. At this rate, I don't expect it, but it would be very nice. But yeah, we uh, we need to get people back, and um, it's a shame how fast they're going. How many we've lost in the last year alone? You know, with uh, Gene Stern as well, and you know Dick Gordon. There's so many amazing names that unfortunately are dying away so uh, if you've gotten the chance to meet any of them you understand what amazing people they are especially alan bean he was a class act all around uh, he will very sorely be missed and uh sorry to end it on that note a bit it's a bit sobering but you know again he lived an amazing life and his artwork tells his story so it's definitely worth taking a look at that but at this point i'd like to thank Everyone who joined us here tonight, by that I mean thank you for joining us, Team <laughs> Thank you, Sawyer. And uh, I want to just say thank you to the folks over at the List Rank Rate uh, podcast that invited me over there. Um, they're a little different from what we do. Um, I was asked to go ahead and rank some of the planets, and we talked some planetary science. We also talked uh, some NASA stuff uh, with that audience, and... Uh, um, I had a lot of fun with the guys. They're a little bit more looser than we are here. They're a little bit more uh, comedically uh, driven, but uh, um, it was it was a heck of a lot of fun. And I, I just wanted to reach out and say uh, say thank you again to those guys to uh, invite me. Hopefully they'll 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 uh, see it in their they'll, they'll sympathize with me and bring me back on. So that'll be that'll be kind of fun. Hopefully, I just got to say my favorite planet is Earth, but I'm a little biased because I live on it. So that's actually the, the the one I selected as my number one. By the way, oh, good, <laughs> good good choice, sir. Good choice. Spoiler alert: you'll have to listen to the podcast on that one for the rest of them. But yep. uh, in the meantime, I'd like to thank you for joining us as well, uh, and for uh, putting up with our antics that started around one o'clock in the morning eastern time here for this but uh so gene thank you for waking up to deal with my crazy work schedule for this oh but, no um anytime up, sir got... anytime 
But coming up, uh, we do have that special we've been promising you that's in the works. That will be coming out very soon. We'll have more news shows. And Gene, you and I are both planning on attending the Parker Solar Probe launch. We'll have on-site launch coverage from that as well. So lots to stay tuned for. I apologize that our schedule has been more monthly than bi-monthly, but stick with us. We got some great content still on the way for you in 2018. We're only halfway through the year, which means there's so much more we can still do. So thank you for joining us. Till next time, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are.